Welcome to Axios Pro Rata, a podcast that takes just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Primack. On today's show, the arrest that is shaking global stock markets and tech executives gather at the White House. But first, the Facebook files. Yesterday, the world was treated to some 250 pages of Facebook's internal emails, courtesy of a British member of parliament who did so in what he called the public interest. They showed basically that Facebook didn't become one of the world's most valuable companies by accident. It can be ruthless towards competitors, particularly when they want to leverage Facebook's platform and less than reverent when it comes to protecting user data. Now, neither of these things are terribly surprising to those who have been even sort of following Facebook over the last couple of years, but it does open up a whole host of problems for the company, and not just the PR ones that Facebook in the documents seems to be most worried about. In the US, most of the disclosed competitive practices seem to be legal, but there are big questions if some of the privacy issues might have violated a 2011 agreement with the Federal Trade Commission. And probably way more importantly, this could become a regulatory nightmare for Facebook in Europe, where antitrust rules are much more liberal. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper on all of this with Bloomberg tech reporter Sarah Fryer. But first, this. Axios gives you the news and analysis you need to get smarter faster on the most important topics. In our unique smart brevity format, we cover topics from politics to science and media to tech. Subscribe to get smarter faster at signup.axios.com. And now back to the Pro Rata podcast. We're joined now by Bloomberg tech reporter Sarah Fryer. So, Sarah, you've been covering Facebook for years. What's the biggest thing you learned in this document dump? I learned from reading all these internal emails is just how Facebook thinks of user data as a bargaining chip in its negotiations with other companies and especially as a tool to prevent competitors from scaling. So Facebook's data is something that has been extremely valuable to everyone else in building their companies. And that's why it's so good in terms of Facebook because people use Facebook through these developers' apps, and they share more to the overall network, and everyone's happy. But in these emails, we see Facebook making decisions about who can have it and who can't, sort of beyond what users would get to decide. One of the things that's interesting about that is how many other companies, and as you say, including competitors, weirdly rely on Facebook, right? Like you and I are in the media business. We know we rely on Facebook, and the level to which a media company relies on Facebook seems to lately kind of correlate to what happens to that media company. Is this a, a warning call to other potential competitors and other internet companies to, like media companies have had to do, get off of relying on Facebook? Well, I used to actually hear that criticism more a few years ago when, when people were so much more tied in with Facebook and they would say, oh, we're going all in on live video. We're going all in on this new product that Facebook's building. And then after the contract ran out, they would find that, okay, well, we weren't able to build a sustainable business there beyond the incentives that Facebook gave us to start to create content. And so we're we're going to have to figure out a new way to grow. And, and I think that we've seen that over and over again in the media business. What's interesting here in the emails that were really between the years of, of 2012 and 2015 is how Facebook 
isn't thinking, when it thinks about user data, it's not thinking in terms of privacy. Privacy is not the center of these discussions, right? Right. Competition is. Even in the discussions where we expect privacy to feature, like there's that one email where they discuss starting to collect everyone's Android call and text logs. Downside of that discussion is discussed as Facebook's bad PR. Yeah, they do seem much more concerned about PR than privacy in these emails. And you, you tweeted that, I think, maybe yesterday, that that seems to be paramount to them. Right. I mean, the way Zuckerberg wants us to think of this reveal is that every decision that Facebook made to restrict your data from competitors and eventually more developers was a good for privacy decision. And therefore, the public is hypocritical if they criticize it since everyone wants privacy. Do you not accept that? Because, right, that is his argument that you guys kept telling us don't share data, you know, keep it, keep it private, keep it private. I think that's the argument in retrospect. I, I think when you look at the emails, that was not the reason given for why people would or would not get data, right? It was, are you not competing with us? Are you spending enough on our ad product? It was all these other factors that matter more to Facebook's growth than whether the data would be bad for users if it was out. Speaking of Zuckerberg, he came out with a statement, and one of the things he said in the statement about these documents was that they were, quote, cherry-picked, basically, to, to build a narrative. Is there any indication that Facebook, therefore, will release all the, say, kind of emails around these emails to give the picture that Facebook claims is better for it? Well, we have seen a pretty unpredictable reaction from Facebook to things that they think are damaging, right? Like, we're still talking about that Soros opposition research scandal that wasn't really quite a scandal from three weeks ago. This is a company that, you know, could do, I think that that would be probably strategically bad for them, although really great for me as I love <laughs> seeing internal documents from companies. But but yeah, I was talking to a source yesterday who, who was telling me, you know, this is not as cherry picked as they make it sound. I remember that competitive list of who's restricted from the data. I remember when we talked to Tinder about this, things yeah. like that, that you know, this was the reality of Facebook at the time when it was trying to figure out its business model. And for them at that time, it, it was very exciting. They felt like the underdog, the public didn't really believe that they could ever build a business, let alone a business on mobile where they were not strong. And that was like the main criticism of Facebook after their IPO was where are they on mobile phones? Absolutely. So this is a company that had this kind of underdog complex. And here they are now so powerful, more than 2 billion users around the world. And it's so interesting to look back at how they talked then about what their opportunities were. And I wonder if internally it's changed. It's interesting that thing about kind of the PR risk versus the privacy risk. And, and maybe they're right about that because they are just all for a big company. They are awful when it comes to PR. So maybe that should be their primary concern. Sarah, last question for you. How do you view the kind of the outgrowth of this and the regulatory risk here? A colleague of mine, Felix Salmon, wrote this morning that while there might be some issues vis-a-vis -vis the old FTC agreement, the real concern for Facebook from a regulation standpoint should be in Europe, where their rules and the U.S.'s rules are very, very different. Oh, I think Europe's going to be incredibly interested in the antitrust angle of this. Uh, I think the U.S., the DOJ is already looking into it. But I think that, you know, while this isn't like a smoking gun for antitrust, it certainly provides a documentary reason to go in that direction if you're a regulator and you really want to pursue it, right? I mean, you can start having hearings. You can start investigating at a level that maybe previously you didn't have 
the political will to do. Sarah, thank you very much for joining us. That was Sarah Fryer, Bloomberg Tech Reporter. You can follow her at Sarah Fryer, F-R-I-E-R. My final two, right after this. Axios Chief Technology Correspondent Ina Fried shares breaking news and analysis on the most consequential companies and players in tech, from the Valley to D.C. Subscribe to Get Smarter Faster at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the Pro Rata Podcast. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is the stunning arrest in Canada of a prominent Chinese tech executive on charges of violating sanctions against Iran. Her name is Meng Wanzhou, and she's chief financial officer of Huawei, a huge maker of smartphone components and one that the U.S. government has deep security concerns about, particularly as more and more networks and devices turn to 5G. So three things to know. First, she was arrested just hours after President Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping completed their Sunday night trade negotiations, leading many to believe that Wanzhou is being used as a political pawn. Second, there's a hearing in Canada tomorrow on whether or not she'll be extradited to the U.S. China, of course, wants her returned immediately, calling this a human rights violation. And third, global markets are plummeting on news of the arrest as it only ratchets up the trade tensions. China's Hang Seng index lost 2.5% overnight, and the Dow is down 550 points as of this taping. The trade situation may eventually get better, but it seems it's going to get a whole lot worse first. Finally, a big group of tech leaders will be meeting at the White House today, including Google CEO Sundar Pichai. Expect President Trump to at least drop in while all his top economic advisors will be there, as will some unexpected names like the president of MIT and, for some reason, Henry Kissinger. Why it matters is that this meeting really isn't getting all that much attention, which is a far cry from a similar meeting in the Trump administration's opening days, which was really the talk of Twitter. In other words, Silicon Valley now accepts that it needs to at least work with the White House, even if it strongly disagrees on much of its policies. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Adam Grassi and Tim Shovers, have a great National Gazpacho Day, even though the weather doesn't at all justify that. And we'll be back on Monday with another Pro Rata Podcast. Podcast.